welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. Tamara Turner. She's a psychological anthropologist and ethnomusicologist who has spent more than 15 years researching the role of music and dance in healing across cultures. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Um, Tamara, welcome back. Um, on our first podcast, um, uh, Tamara is a psychological, psychological anthropologist, ethnomusicologist. She spent a lot of time in Africa and North Africa, over 15 years. And she presented to her group um, some videos and her experience watching the local people engage in what's called trance, T-R-A-N-C-E, dancing. And this is an area that's been really marred by the trans-African slave trade, trans-Saharan slave trade for hundreds and hundreds of years. So that we point out the trauma course is horrible, what happens to these people, but also just the uncertainty of am I going to be captured tomorrow? It's pretty hard to live a normal, relaxed life when you don't know exactly when you're going to be captured and sold as a slave. You know, families torn apart, physical atrocities, all sorts of stuff, really un unimaginable. And what I have found out in my own journey out of chronic pain, that in the United States, in the medicine, we're trying to treat symptoms and make people feel better. And when she presented her talk to us, we were blown away because I have long felt that healing occurs from actually being with your pain, not running from it. Because if you run from your pain, it actually becomes worse. So they somehow hundreds of years ago figured out a way to actually go into their pain in a healing manner. And so Tamara, welcome back. And I really want to focus on why this works. And I want to summarize really quickly that there's, they have a ritual where they're in a group of anywhere from 50 to a couple hundred. It's community. And they go through music, dance, emotions start to well up. They express them physically but they really reenact and allow themselves to feel the pain of generations of trauma, their own trauma. And it's a remarkable experience to watch. We thought when we asked Tamara to talk, that it would be just like, well, let's try some music, try some rhythm. And those are healing modalities, by the way, but this was that plus much deeper about going really, really deep into their pain, which by the way, is the essence of healing. So my, one of my personal missions, I unfortunately discovered, fortunately or unfortunately for me, discovered it the hard way that running from, running from your pain just doesn't work. And so I'm just really curious, Tamara, how they didn't have modern research, they didn't have psychologists. Somehow they figured out that running from your pain doesn't work and that healing occurs actually by going into your pain. It's the opposite process. And I'll say one final thing, because I know this is your podcast. <laughs> so, but it's interesting because we, the more you run from your pain, the stronger it becomes. You cannot outrun your pain. And so as you fight it and resist it, it actually becomes stronger just from a neuroplasticity standpoint. So somehow they figured out by going into their pain in a very deep way that it was a healing process. So I'm just really curious how you think all that got figured out. Well, thanks, David. Um, yeah, I well, first of all, the cultural setting uh, and different cultural 
values, different beliefs about why we're here. Um, I mean, this, this is all taking place within the context of Islam and within Sufism. And Sufism is a branch of Islam. It's, it's quite complex to get into, but um, it, it has to do more with sort of the personal relationship with God. Um, and within, we're speaking very generally here, within Sufi thought, suffering is accepted as, as an important part of life. Um, it's character building. It's just a given. And there's, there's just already this understanding that we're all going to suffer, and this is part of what it means to, to be a human. And already okay, there, can, I the stop you for, can I stop you for sure. a second there? Okay. Yeah. So they're saying suffering is part of being human. Mm -hmm. So instead of, so our thinking, correct me if I'm wrong, when we suffer, we look at ourselves, we look at ourselves as victims, which makes the suffering worse. Now, my question is, do they look at it that deeply that suffering is inevitable? It's part of life. Because if you look at it that way, then that's just the way it is. It's, you're not necessarily a victim of suffering. It's just suffering. To me, that seems like a pretty big difference. Correct. Yes. Am I, am I true in that? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. There, there's very much this humility about, I mean, life, life is can be quite difficult there. And yeah, I think the attitude is very much that we're all going to suffer. And there's an, the other important part of this is there's a lot of emphasis on gratitude. And, and this is also coming from the religious context of Islam, where let me just give you a, a quotidian example. When, when you're meeting people on the street and somebody could be incredibly ill and they will say, yes, you know, this is bothering me and that's bothering me, but they always finish it with gratitude. And there's, there's the kind of cultural codes are very much around, it's okay to mention that something's not great in your life, but, but we shouldn't talk about it too much. Um, we don't wanna to draw too much attention to talking about it. We will recognize that we all suffer and, we, and then the, the exchange is always ended with, um, alhamdulillah, which means, and thanks be to God, which is a statement of gratitude and humility that we're all here, we're all going to suffer, we recognize that in each other. But yeah, there's not a lot of verbal talking about pain. So even culturally, I, I found it challenging as an anthropologist, when you normally you want to ask a lot of questions, but the cultural codes are, are to not talk too much about painful things. Uh, because sound and words have vibration and it can draw more of that. That's part of the also cultural setting. So they would, so it's more about moving it physically and being in it emotionally, but people try, there's not this tradition of verbalizing and of talk therapy, et cetera, et cetera. So again, that's extremely fascinating to me because it took me a long time to figure this out. But in my experience, almost every one of my patients in chronic pain, including myself historically, talks about their pain probably 60 to 70% 70, 70 of their waking hours. They can't stop. And then they talk to other people about their chronic pain. And one of the worst prognostic factors for chronic pain is belonging to a pain support group. So people bond on their pain. So one of the cardinal rules of the healing journey, one of the five basic things we put out there is simply never discuss your pain, no complaining, no gossiping, no discussing your medical care. Just it comes off the table because that's where your brain is. So from a neuroplasticity standpoint, your brain develops along pain circuits, not on the healing process. So nurturing gratitude is a huge deal, but you can't nurture gratitude if you're complaining all the time. So that's really, really fascinating. So 
I still am still fascinated how they figured this out instinctively like this. So a couple of things that so that's really important. I didn't realize that. Not talk so that could, in our country, I mean people complain a lot. We're victims of everything. And even I mean, I always have different issues. I, I get it, but you know, these people suffered ridiculous. They don't have an incredible lifestyle. We have more than they can imagine, but our culture complains a lot. Can you just contrast that with what you saw compared to what you see in our country right now? Yeah, I mean, it, it was incredibly life-changing and really, um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I've become part of a family over there when I, I still talk to my my friends in Algeria on, on a regular basis, at least once or twice a week and, um, you know, have my own struggles going on and, and I when I share things going on, you know, I still get this, this beautiful advice from my friends about Tamara, this is just part of life. You will get through this, you know, look at all these great, these great things you've got going on. We know how strong you are. It, it's this constant, like, um, yeah, it's, it's really their attitude about, like you said, you know, we're, it's not a victim mentality. It's really that this is, this is just what, this is what you go through. And when life is hard, I think, you know, from their perspective, um, you appreciate things more. Um, I was welcomed with open arms in so many ways there that I think, you know, if an Algerian came to the U.S., you know, we, we, we wouldn't treat them that way. So I was incredibly moved and it was just really life changing to be in a place where resources are, are, are much thinner on the ground. Um, but the amount of compassion and love and open arms was, was really moving and incredible. Well, I just want to create a quote, a paper by Dr. Danzer out of Austin, Texas. So without going into a lot of detail today, why we know the essence of chronic disease, not just chronic pain. So it's mental or physical pain that's chronic. We know it's chronic, what we call threat physiology, which is excitatory neurotransmitters. You're consuming fuel, your body's inflamed, you're basically in fight or flight and you're fired up. So when that's sustained, people develop physical illness and physical and mental symptoms, illness and diseases. Mm. So we know that, things that are anti-inflammatory. So lowering the body's threat response is really critical. So from a social factor, we know there's four things amongst many that actually lower inflammatory markers. One of them is a positive outlook, not positive thinking, but a positive outlook. The other one is a um, positive affect of just, you know, I can do it. You just keep moving forward. Then also social connection and community is a big one and also hope and optimism. So those have been shown to directly lower inflammatory markers. And so again, as you keep your brain in a positive outlook, your brain changes, physically changes structure, and you go into circuits that are more enjoyable and pleasurable. And so the sequence of healing, I call it, my wife came up with the letter C, the sequence of healing is first one is connection. So you just visualize a tree with roots going into the ground. What happens is you learn to be with your past, not to whitewash it or get rid of it or analyze it. Just learning to be with your past is connection with you know, the keyword is awareness. So you don't talk about your past, but you learn to be with it. Then the trunk of the tree is confidence. You learn the tools to process it and be able to tolerate a lot of the unpleasant emotions part of it. Then the real healing occurs at the top of the tree, which is creativity. You move your brain into a different spiritual dimension play, gratitude, all those different things that you talk about. So what's fascinating to me is that the first step is connection, connection, connection. And the key question is, what can I learn from my past, not how to analyze it and fix it? 
So we have this thing in our country called self-esteem, where we try to feel better about our past. We try to whitewash it, pretend it's not there, put on a front that the past isn't that big of a deal. We can deal with it. And that's what blew me away about your tape, that people not only were with their past, they really allow themselves to feel it and embody the past at a level I just didn't think was possible, especially that degree of trauma. So the opposite, in my mind, of self-esteem is confidence. And confidence is being being grounded in reality. This is my reality. This is what it is. Self-esteem is trying to whitewash that, which creates the opposite problem. So then we are who we sure shouldn't be. So we complain a lot. So you just point out in that country, they don't complain. But the same thing, which is really critical, which stimulates the release of what's called oxytocin, which is highly inflammatory, is community and connection. So somehow they figured that out. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that deep sense of community that you just described. Yeah, that's that's really critical. Family and community um, ancestors as well. There's a deep connection to family and ancestors. Um, yeah, c- connected to that, I was blown away by the kind of retention that they have for events and for things that people do. And, and as an academic myself, I write everything down. And sometimes, you know, I can't remember something unless I wrote it down and I'm tied to my writing and my words and et cetera, et cetera. And there was a moment where I was um, discussing with some people a, a ritual that we all went to. And they were asking me about my trance dance because I was learning how to trance dance myself. That was fascinating. Um, And this had happened more than a year previous. And they were asking me about the dance. And I said, well, I think, you know, it's probably this song that I always dance to. And one of the guys said, no, no, it wasn't. It was this other song. And I thought, how would he know that? And, um, and I went and I looked at my field notes and he was correct that he could remember more than a year ago what song I happened to dance to. And it was like, so these kinds of things blew me away that culturally it's um, the way that, you know, the way that, that the brain is wired, the way that why we remember things, the context in which we remember things. Um, I actually felt like they, they had a much uh, broader understanding and memory for community and for events than I did. And I would, I would have to write everything down to remember it. <laughs> so right. it was, you know, that was just another point about, you know, a different kind of way of being, being embodied of what you pay attention to in your life and what you find important that, that sticks with you. Right. I mean, I think one of the essences, I, I don't think you know the answer to this, but, you know, we have a tremendous amount of chronic disease in this country. And again, Mental and physical pain are the same entity. They all have the same root cause of chronic inflammation. And so it's not just chronic pain, it's just chronic disease. But God, we bond on our pain. We complain about things. We are always listening to the news. And so the essence of what I think that we're doing, we're sort of a disconnected society right now, which I think is a major factor in chronic pain. And when with chronic pain is we tend to deny our sensations and complain about it. We're disconnecting from our bodies also. Mm-hmm. So you can't connect with your body and you can't connect with those, you can't connect with people around you until you connect with yourself, which includes your pain. So I find it fascinating that they instinctively have figured this out. And then the community thing is a big deal. 53% of Americans are socially isolated. And I suspect that's not true over there. No. So, yeah, so let's, say, let's say you're given village. I mean, social isolation in a way probably doesn't exist over there. 
Yeah, rarely. I can't think of an example of it. I mean, I'm sure there must be some example, but no, it's it's the kind, it's the sort of place where there's there's co-sleeping in rooms, like whole families will sleep in a room together. I mean, it's it's so community family or oriented that uh, at times I also had to find strategies because I couldn't, I wasn't used to being around people 24 seven, <laughs> all that. So, so that was also an interesting cultural insight was our way, our normal way of going about things. We, we are more about the individual and, and autonomy and having space to ourselves, but it was difficult for me to find space to myself there, even to do writing. So it, it was a very different kind of setting. Mm-hmm. So what, how did you feel in that environment? What was it like living there? I felt all kinds of emotions. It was fantastic, sometimes overwhelming. It was, was joyful. It was difficult at times. It was a lot of cultural adaptation for me. Um, not only speaking languages that I'm, uh, aren't my mother tongue, but um, also this is this is not my community in history is so constantly adapting. It's very it's it's tiring and fascinating and incredibly rewarding and life changing. Um, but yeah, I, I had to develop certain kinds of strategies to also catch a breath and um, figured out how to how to sometimes have an apartment to myself just to kind of have some space to think and write. I, I kept very detailed notes of every ritual, what happened in every ritual I was filming, I was audio recording. Um, so it was a lot of, it was definitely information overload, which is why in 10 years, you know, I feel like I still have a lot to write, but, and continue to write about it. Um, I learned an immense amount. So I know that uh, they have their issues like all of us do, but did you sense about, um, anxiety and depression in the culture? Do they, uh, do you think, I mean, anxiety and depression in a country is high. It's like 25 to 35% of our countries flat out depressed and we also know anxiety and depression are both inflammatory disorders not psychological um and we have also drug abuse etc cetera, etc cetera. so could you get a feel for the sort of general flavor of the instance of depression anxiety in that group in this particular group and i should be specific here so this is again the d1 community i would say there, I would say there's not really a concept of, of depression and anxiety because there's there's definitely difficulty and, and trouble and strife, but there is such a strong feeling of like somebody always has your back there. It's such a strong sense of belonging that, for, for instance, one of my best um, friends there at the time when I arrived last summer, he didn't have a car, he didn't have a job, so he didn't have a way to help feed his family, and all his friends came together, and so they drove him where he needed to be, and they provided food, and so so even in those situations, there, somebody always has your back. Now, Algeria, more broadly and in general, there's a, there's a lot of different socioeconomic realities there, so and, and I'm just beginning to, to do research into kind of more at a national level, what, what those kind of rates uh, or ideas might look like in terms of anxiety and de- depression. But within the communities that I worked with that are regularly engaging in these kinds of um, ceremonial practices, I, I would say they, prob- they probably wouldn't, I mean, I can't think of an example of somebody who ex- exhibited depression and anxiety the way we talk about it. Right. So I want to summarize the healing concepts because I mean, we probably would do some future podcasts because there's so many layers to this. So, and just let me have you put your take on this. Like I say, so the essence of healing is first of all, connection, 
to everything, positive and negative, not running from it. Second of all, community is a big deal. <clears throat> Number three, nurturing gratitude is a big deal. And then again, in America, 53% of people are socially isolated. We don't nurture gratitude. We tend to complain a lot. And we sort of make this joke, well, that's a first world problem. And a lot of what we complain about is a first world problem. So the idea that they have that much community in nurturing gratitude with so few resources to me is just mind boggling. So there's something, there's something about the human, and I've said this for a long time, is that the human body knows how to heal. And somehow as a species, without all this modern, in, modern technology and information, they instinctively knew how to come together and form community, which is the essence of human development anyway. They're nurturing gratitude under the worst of circumstances. They're not pissed off with their father and mother for ruining their lives because they're just happy to be here. I mean, there's so many things that they do that is the essence of the healing journey. I'm just really fascinated in. And again, it goes back to my original thing that the human body knows how to heal if we allow it. And you know, the first step is getting connected to who we are, all of us, and then connecting to other people and then connecting to higher powers is connection, connection, connection. So that's what was so fascinating about your stuff. And then of course, rhythm and music, we know are healing in of themselves. So you have that additional layer. So essentially they have outlined a very powerful healing journey. Agreed, yeah, yeah. And I think the safety part of the community is critical there too, because the the intensity of the of the affects that are gone into there are quite striking, which to me, um, I think you know you can only really do that when you feel really safe and you know you know that you're in a a, a, sh a shared space, a, a, a shared bubble that's also safe. And on, on that note, I will add that there, that is also attended to in the rituals. So certain rituals if they're not behind closed doors and invite only, if they do take place outside, there will be physical metal barriers set up so that people who are not part of the community, if they, they might be able to watch from afar, but, they, but they're careful about who's in the space. And, and if you're not part of the community, like there's a lot of refereeing going, going on. So for example, one time when a, a man showed up who was inebriated, he was basically he was very quickly escorted out. So there's a, a, a very careful attention to the atmosphere of that ritual, that the, the overall affect and the atmosphere of safety is carefully guarded. I wrote an article on that as well, just on the topic of atmosphere and how important it is to have that sort of right feeling when you're allowing people to go into this deep, deep pain. You don't just, you don't do it on your own at home, you do it in community and in in with, with a person who's carefully directing the ritual at all times. Wow, now it's just really fascinating stuff. So Tama, thank you. Could you um, give us the information how to access your research papers? Yeah, again, so if you go to academia.edu and type in Tamara Turner, there will be a number of articles there as PDF that can be downloaded, also other titles. And then also as a Google search, if you put Tamara Turner and then D1, D-I-W-A-N, a couple of my articles are open access and they can be they can be read without having to have any, without a firewall, so to speak. So okay. there's great in there. Well, Tamara, thanks again. Um, I honestly, as you know, I gave your name to a lot of different people because I think 
this is what needs to be translated into our mainstream medicine. And we tend to look at this stuff as sort of out there. And it's actually, it's the core of healing and mainstream medicine right now is detached from that. And so we now have documentation that these rituals that you talked about actually lower inflammatory markers actually heal disease. And so it's a long story. I won't rant too much about what modern medicine, modern medicine is doing to people, but we're sort of doing the opposite of what you described. So I find this really fascinating. So anyway, thank you very, very much. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. This was a pleasure. Thanks so much. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Tamara Turner, for explaining the cultural context of the Dewan community's approach to healing from pain and trauma through trance dancing. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.